time in his word. So, Father, we, we thank you, Lord. We know you've overheard, and we thank you for our church and all these great things that are, that are coming up and that are going on. Lord, we sense your life here, and we pray it would continue. We do lift up Bobby, Lord, to, together right now, and we pray that you would uh, be with him, that you would use him there, that you would give him uh, peace and confidence in you, Lord, that he would uh, not fear nor worry, Lord, but that you would give him your word and, um, and that you would just bless him in that endeavor. And so we just thank you for that. And Lord, we pray for our study tonight. We pray that you would speak to us as you faithfully do, that you'd cause the scripture to come to life. Lord, we pray for your challenge, your teaching, your exhortation, your change within us. Lord, we trust in you and we love you, Lord, as you first loved us. We thank you for calling us. So bless this time in your word. Uh, We ask for that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from the 1800s, and I don't even know if he's the one who first said it, but he's credited with the the quote, that before God can use a man greatly, he must wound him deeply. And, you know, when you kind of first hear that, you, you almost raise an eyebrow a little bit and you think, well, something about that doesn't quite sound right. You know, before God can use a man greatly, he must wound him deeply. That sounds more like an abusive parent or spouse, or a narcissistic personality than it does a loving Heavenly Father. You know, like, before I can bless you, I've got to break you kind of uh, thing. And you can almost hear it like that. But it isn't really, when it's spoken and said, it isn't um, the idea of an abusive, narcissistic uh, father. You know, it describes the human feeling, what it feels like on our perspective and what we go through. Um, But really what it is, it's the father's affection. And here's why. And really the heart behind that phrase and what it means, because there is uh, some truth in it. As Christians, people that belong to God, you and I, we have uh, a great advantage being born again. And and, and those advantages just are far-reaching. They just go so far. And uh, first and foremost is that we belong to God. We've been adopted by Him. We know Him. We're known by Him. We're forgiven of our sins. He's committed to us to to finish the work that He began within our lives. We have His Spirit living inside of us. We have His Word and His truth so that we understand what life is in the context of life. He gives us gifts of His Holy Spirit, and He adopts us into His family. And so, I mean, it's just beyond and beyond what it is that we belong to Him. Um, What we also have an advantage as Christians is that we have dual citizenship. And that is that we are citizens of this earth and that we are physically here in the flesh. But when we're saved, we automatically obtain citizenship in heaven. The Bible says that our names are written in heaven. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul says that God has translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious son. He's already put us there. It's something that's already done. In the book of Philippians, it tells us, Paul says that our, he uses the word conversation. It's King James, but it's really the word citizenship. He says our citizenship is in heaven, meaning that we're already citizens of the kingdom that one day uh, we will physically inherit. And so the kingdom that dominates the heavenly, the higher kingdom, we are already citizens of that kingdom. And we have access to its resources through prayer and by right of adoption because we belong to God. That's a great advantage. Another advantage that we have 
as Christians is that we have a personal and specific purpose and calling for our individual lives. God doesn't do generic. So he doesn't have like this group of kids where he he doesn't know their name and we kind of have this like heavenly uh, social security number in a barcode and that when we get to heaven, we'll get scanned in. And we're just part of like the generic family of God. God doesn't do generic. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows us by name. He knit us together in the womb. I mean, his level of, uh, uh, of, of knowledge of us is beyond what we could even comprehend. It's way better than we know ourselves. And he gives us a calling and a purpose that's uh, in, in line with the way that he designed us and the way that he made us. And so we have a calling. We, we serve a purpose. We have a reason. It's not just this uh, thing where we're walking along and God just says, all right, I'll, I'll let you in kind of a thing. Uh, Isaiah 65, verse 22. God says that my people shall long enjoy the works of their hands. That is the things that he has given us to do. And so for the people of God, there's a specific place that he has called us to, something for us to do. And it's a place that we're to enjoy productivity for his glory. And so God has given that to us. Now, this is a whole different study, but you could miss that. It's possible that, that you as a Christian can just kind of coast through this world and never realize or discover what that purpose is. That can happen through stubbornness, a lack of trust, a lack of surrender, impatience, not waiting for God, rebellion. Uh, it's never because of incompetence. We never miss our calling because we're not able. And, and it's never because of a lack of intelligence either, because the shepherd is never dependent on the IQ of the sheep, right, to get his will communicated and accomplished. So we don't miss it because we're incompetent or stupid. We can miss it because we're rebellious, stubborn, uh, you know, impatient, and, and all those kind of things. But all that to say that God has something for us and is part of the great advantage that we have of being born again. And so there's a great advantage that we have in this life to belong to God. Now, with that advantage, there comes also an inherent disadvantage, a challenge that we face as Christians that the world doesn't have to worry about. It's a disadvantage that is unique to us. And what is that? First of all, when you're a citizen of this world, you're not born again, you don't know God, you're just working your way through life. There is something that happens to you, whether you like it or not, that you're born into this world a completely blank slate. And that means that you have to learn. You have to be educated. You have to figure out your body and your senses, what's going on in your environment around you. You have to be educated in terms of like knowing the sciences and the laws of the universe. You have to grow up in a culture and become adapted to people, person-to-person relationships. You have to figure out the world and, and the earth and how to make it produce. I mean, you just have to figure out life as a human being. And that takes a long time. I don't really feel like I'm there yet. I'm well into my adulthood, and I still feel like I haven't figured it all out. I'm starting to, you know, right at this point, 40 years old, you know. However, when you're a Christian, you not only have to figure out this world and your citizenship in it, but now you have this whole other kingdom you've been born into, and you've got to figure that out too. 
And so you got to learn the language of heaven, the values of heaven, the cultures of heaven, the ideals of heaven, how it works, the king of heaven, the culture of it, and how it fits in the context of us being here and God being there. And learning how to deal with not being able to hear his voice and developing this whole other set of senses that aren't in the natural. And so the disadvantage that we have is that we have to learn two lives. At the same time, while we're still trying to figure out this one, we're also trying to figure out that one. And that can be extremely challenging. And neither one of those things is easy, growing up in this world or, or that one. I remember a specific period of my life when I was learning long division in school, you know, when you have to, you know, bring the things over. And I just remember vividly, vividly screaming out in frustration because I could not get it. I just could not grasp the concept of bringing the numbers, lining up the columns and, you know, borrowing or, you know, all the things that you had to do borrowing. I still don't get it, right? That's, that's, that's subtraction, you know, but I couldn't get it. And I just remember just being so frustrated inside and just feeling like this horrible thing. Now, long division is easy, right? That's like second, third grade type stuff. And yet it was so frustrating that I couldn't do it. And that was in the world. That was just one little piece of what we have to figure out being educated in this life. Now translated into a kingdom that we can't see, we can't hear and, and, and sense with our, our human normal senses, is this whole other thing. And sometimes, growing up in God's kingdom, there are some frustrating seasons and events and lessons that we have to learn that almost make us scream out. Lord, why are you doing this? Why is this happening to me? Where are you? What is going on here? And, and that is a reality of the fact that we are citizens, sons and daughters of the living God. And here's the fact of the matter, is that every child of God, every one of us that is here tonight, we will be raised up by our Heavenly Father. He is going to raise us because He's faithful. We're going to be educated. We are going to be prepared by Him to fulfill the purposes that he has set out and established for us. We will go through all of those things, and then we must graduate. We must be approved. And it's an interesting thing, but if you do a word study in the New Testament on the word approved, you'll find that it comes up over and over again. First, speaking of Jesus himself, it says that he was a man approved of God. And, and so God first put his seal of graduation upon Jesus himself, who had to do what the same things that you and I do. We read of it concerning Paul, that he was approved of God to be a minister, ordained and called. We read of it what Jesus said to his apostles in John 15, when he said that I have ordained you and sent you. They were approved. Paul spoke of it concerning those that God will raise up in ministry. And he says that lest, speaking of himself, when I have been approved of God, that I then would be a castaway and disqualified because my flesh got the best of me. And then he talks about others that would be approved. And so God raises us up. He educates us. He prepares us. And then once we're ready, he then goes, okay, sent. And we graduate in the sense. Now, we don't stop growing. We don't stop learning just like in this life. But there is something that God is doing and accomplishing. And so you say, what does that have to do with Genesis chapter 39? Everything. Here's why. 
Because what we come to as we approach this chapter is now the beginning of Joseph's spiritual preparation. We see that he's come into young adulthood. He's a citizen of this world. He's learned a thing or two about how it works. Not everything, but a thing or two. And now God is going to prepare Joseph for the spiritual destiny and purpose that he has and the reason why he has called him. And thus Joseph is going to begin this season, this somewhat long season, 13 years of preparation now where God, as his father, sees to it that he is prepared and ready for the thing that he has for him. And it's not going to be easy. And amazingly, Joseph doesn't even know, because God doesn't send you a certified letter and say, this is what's about to happen and here's why. But nevertheless, God is going to do it. And he's going to bring Joseph through and and the whole thing. The last thing before we get into the text that I want to say by way of introduction is that everything that happens to Joseph in these next 13 years of challenge in his life, it is God that is doing it. It is not man. It is not Joseph's brothers. It is not Potiphar's wife. It isn't the, 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 the neglectful butcher and baker. You know, it is God that is allowing and doing all of the things that are happening. God owns it. All of it. And that's the same thing for you and I, the things that we go through. Sometimes we want to say, well, the devil and, you know, the world or my wife or the kids or... No, 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 no. It's God. He's doing it. He's allowing it. And he's using it. And he's going to use it to shape and prepare and ultimately to bless you and I for the destiny and purpose that we have in him. And so we see Joseph's preparation. Uh, We begin the chapter, Joseph in Potiphar's house. It says in verse 1, It says that Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him off the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph and he was a prosperous man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had put into his hand, all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass over, or from the time that he had made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not anything that he had except for the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored there in the house. And so Joseph in his house, there are three defining characteristics of Joseph's personality and nature in this time that he is in Potiphar's house. They're all given to us right there in verse 2. It tells us, first of all, that the Lord was with Joseph. Now, what I want you to notice about that is that it is factual and not sensual. And what I mean by that is that God is stating and telling us by the authority of Scripture that he was with Joseph. He does not say that Joseph felt God was with him. In fact, Joseph probably was very much feeling perhaps that God had forsaken him, that God was not with him. 
I felt God with me when I was in my father's house wearing that nice coat and carrying a clipboard and being the overseer over my sons and everything was going really well. That's when I felt that God was with me. Now I'm a slave being traded on the open market in a foreign land where I don't know the language and I'm bought by this strange man who's got no hair and wearing makeup and I'm not so sure if God is with me now. I'm not sure if he felt that the Lord was with him, but God declares that he is with him. One of the traps that we can fall into, especially in our seasons of preparation, is that we can begin to walk by feelings and not walk by faith. Jesus said one of the last words that he spoke before his ascension, he said that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That which I have begun in you, I will carry it out to completion. And when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, God says that he is with us, whether we feel it or not. And there are seasons designed by God purposefully where he doesn't want us to feel him because he's testing, strengthening, and proving our faith, and faith that is felt is not faith. And so we're to walk in the factual, not in the sensual. He's with me because he said he's with me. And if I don't feel him with me, it's because he's with me, not wanting me to feel that he's with me. And that's a part of what he does at times. And we see it in the lives of all of God's servants. It says that the Lord was with Joseph. It also tells us there in verse 2 that he was a prosperous man. The word in the Hebrew means to rush, to push forward, to be productive, to be successful, to be profitable. That is, that Joseph was an industrious worker in the place where he was. He might not have liked the place where he was. He wouldn't have chosen the place where he was. But he decided that he was going to give all that he was to the place where he was. And that he was going to make the most of it and bring the most forth out of it. And I think that's an amazing example to you and I who find ourselves in seasons of our life in a place where we wouldn't have chosen and that we don't necessarily like. I think sometimes we can feel that way as parents. We think, how in the world did I get here? Sometimes I look around my kitchen table and I see seven of us and I go, how how did, what, I'm not a station wagon guy. I'm not a minivan guy, you know, and how did I get it? You know, and that can happen as, as mothers, as fathers. It can happen in uh, various positions that we hold from time to time. It can happen in relationships, sometimes just in a mental thing. I'm not where I want to be, but yet I'm going to make the most of it, and I'm going to be as productive as I can in the place that I'm at. I remember one of the best pieces of advice I was given as an early Christian. Uh, I, I was brought up, you know, with, with soft hands and clean shoes. I would get in trouble for, for having dirt on my shoes when I came home. And my father used to um, motivate us or try to motivate me. He did, worked with the other two. It was more difficult. He, he tried to motivate by saying, if you don't apply yourself to your studies, then you're going to grow up and you're going to wear steel toe boots and a hard hat. And I just grew up with this whole thing. Steel toe boots and a hard hat is not good. Steel toe boots and a hard hat is not good. That was, that was the mentality. Well, God saved me and led me right into a carpenter's position. And I remember the first day wearing steel toe boots and a hard hat as a Christian. And I thought, steel toe boots and a hard hat, not good. God, what are you doing in my life? This is some big mistake, you know. And one of the best pieces of advice a friend gave me, he said, be ambitious. He said, learn everything that you can in the place that you are. 
If you're told to sweep the floor, sweep the floor as fast as you can and then ask the, 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 the highest up person that you have access to how he's doing what he's doing and ask him to teach you. And he said, just be ambitious about what you're doing right where you are. And I took that. I grabbed a hold of that. And I learned very quickly what I was doing. And I began to enjoy what it was. And now I look around and I just look you know, in at, at the things that God has taught me with a hard hat and work boots, and I'm so grateful for it. And that was the attitude of Joseph. Now, I'm not trying to compare myself with him. He did way better. I complained. I kicked and screamed all along. God, what you, you know, Joseph, good example. He was prosperous. And then the third thing it tells us is that he was in the house of his master. And you say, well, that's just, you know, f- you know filling up the, the facts of the matter. No, 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 no. What it's communicating to you and I is that he was in the house of his master. In other words, what he was doing, where he was, he was in it. He wasn't physically present, but mentally somewhere else checked out back in Egypt. No, he took the the mentality, God has me here, and I'm going to be in it for whatever it is. I'm going for it. And it's just a good example of where he is. Now, the outcome of it, we're told then in verse 3, is that his master saw that the Lord was with him. And I love that. Because here you have Potiphar, this Egyptian man who does not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has no access to him. He's got no revelation of him. God has not moved in Egypt in any way. And based solely upon the work ethic and the blessing of God upon one man's life, Potiphar saw that God was with him. Potiphar could see something that maybe even Joseph couldn't see about himself. And the amazing thing is that it came without a single word. Joseph didn't testify. He didn't say who he belonged to. He just applied himself diligently to where he was. He embraced the challenges of it. And the result was evangelism. Isn't that remarkable? is that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him. And then it tells us also that the Lord made everything that Joseph did to prosper. Isn't that hopeful? I mean, listen, if we embrace what God has given to us to be and do right now, he is able, like Paul said, to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Furthermore, we're told in verses 4 through 6 that Joseph found grace In Potiphar's sight, that is that Potiphar was pleased with Joseph beyond all expectations. We're told that Joseph served Potiphar. That is that he had an attitude of a servant and not of a leader or a lord. He came with humility. And we're told that the result of that is that Joseph was put over all. And isn't it an amazing confirmation of God's word where he says that he gives grace and he exalts the humble. But he humbles those that are proud. And we see it played out in Joseph's life so beautiful. And it says that the blessing of the Lord expanded in Potiphar's possessions. And everything was just growing and flourishing in Potiphar's place in his farm. And then that little section closes out, setting us up for the next segment, that Joseph was a stud. It tells us that he was goodly, that he was handsome. That's what it means, is that there was just something impressive about his physical uh, appearance, and that's going to come uh, with a price tag. But there's some critically important lessons um, that God is, is teaching Joseph in this situation that Joseph has no idea that he's learning. He has no idea that God is actually teaching him things in this place. First of all, he's teaching Joseph the culture 
the politics and the ethics of the Egyptians. That's going to be a very important thing for Joseph to have a very firm grasp on when he gets where he's ultimately going. And God is teaching him in Potiphar's house. He's also learning how to cultivate the fields and the soil of Egypt. Now, you remember, he grew up as a shepherd, not a farmer. And he has knows nothing about it, but he's going to need to know how to make the soil of Egypt bring forth and bring forth in abundance. And God is teaching him that in Potiphar's house. He's learning the laws of earth and of harvest. He's also learning how to obtain the favor and the confidence of common men in Egypt. He's learning how to lead on a very small scale. He's over the entire thing. And he's going to need to know that for his future, but he doesn't even know that yet. And he's also learning to manage and to oversee and to bring produce out of the resources that are at his disposal. He's learning how to be productive in the place where he is. And it's amazing, isn't it? Because we see on the other side, knowing the full story, why Joseph had to go through all these things. But he had no idea yet. But nevertheless, God, the Father, is faithfully preparing Joseph for the things that he'll need in his future. Now, at this point, things are going pretty good for him. And I imagine if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking, okay, God, I can make lemonade if you've given me lemons. And this isn't so bad. I got a pretty good gig here. I've won the favor of my master. I pretty much rule this house. I could pretend in my own mind that I am Potiphar. You know, he's not even around. He, all he cares about is if there's food on his table when he comes home. Lord, things could just stay just like this and I could be content. Problem is, Joseph's got more to learn. And God's not done yet. And God's got something for his future. This isn't the expected end. God didn't save Joseph to be the vice president of Potiphar, Inc. God saved Joseph for something higher, and thus there must be a paradigm shift in order for him to end up there. And there's still much more for him to learn. So it says in verse 7, it says that it came to pass after these things that his master's wife, not given her name, cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, lie with me. No, she wasn't saying, bend the truth. She was saying, come to bed with me. But he refused, and he said unto his master's wife, behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither has he kept back anything from me but thee. Because you are his wife, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her, he didn't listen to her, to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. What we have here in this segment, verses 7 through 12, is we have the picture, the classic biblical example of how to handle temptation. Probably the greatest picture of temptation that can happen in a human life is illustrated here on the pages of Scripture. A young man in his sexual prime 
who is handsome himself, is being put to it by a beautiful, powerful Egyptian woman in a time and in a situation when he could very easily succumb to the temptation and get away with it with no quote-unquote consequences. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about the armor of God. Pastor Bobby gave a series on that just very recently in the book of Ephesians. And in that passage, Paul says that God's given us armor so that we'll be able to withstand in the evil day. You say, the evil day. What in the world is the evil day? Do you know what the evil day is? The evil day is the day that temptation, opportunity, and desire all meet together. That's an evil day. See, if temptation comes into your life, we all get tempted It's no big deal. It's a temptation. We can handle that fairly easily. But when temptation and desire come together at the same time, oh, that's a little bit harder, but I can still withstand as long as I don't have opportunity. If I have temptation and opportunity, but I don't have desire, then that's pretty easy. I don't want it. You know, yeah, I could be tempted by that, but not really in the mood for that. And so even though the opportunity is here, if I have a desire and an opportunity, but I'm too tired or thick for the temptation to come, I'm going to get away with that. I'll get out of that. But when temptation, desire, and opportunity all meet, that's an evil day. And that's exactly what happens to Joseph here. Temptation, desire, opportunity all come together at the same time. It's the greatest test of morality in the life of this young man. And it's an amazing thing. We look at this and we say, oh my, what in the world is going to happen? How is he going to get out of this? Now, God allows temptation in our lives for three purposes. Number one, to expose our weaknesses so that we can repent and change to prove the value of our profession and of our faith, because that's what temptation does, is it reveals to us, it proves or shows what we're made of. And then thirdly, to purify, ultimately to refine us. When we feel the heat of it, it burns away chaff, and it purifies the good that's in us. And so God allows temptation. And Joseph could have very easily rationalized this away. He could have said, oh God, you've dealt me a very slack hand in my life. You've allowed my mother to die. You've allowed me to be taken from my father's house. I'm in a foreign land. You've abandoned me by all outward measures. And you know what? I'm just going to give myself into my flesh because why should I continue to follow you if you're going to allow these things to happen in my life? He could justify it. He could excuse it. He'd be able to indulge and he'd probably even be able to hide it and get away with it. It would have been very easy for him to rationalize this away. But he doesn't. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it's an important verse. Many of us know it already. God says that he will not allow us to be tempted above what we're able to handle. But he, he will, with every temptation, give us an open door and a way to escape so that we'll be able to bear it. Now, if God says that he's not going to allow us to be tempted above what we're able to handle, then that means that he is faithful to equip us with everything that we need before the temptation comes. And God is always faithful to do that. And so we know in, J- in Joseph's life, before this temptation comes, we know he already is equipped with a few things. 
he knows, Joseph does, God's design for human sexuality. He's been probably taught it by Jacob. We know that God communicated to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob his laws, his principles, his statutes, and its ways. He tells us that in Genesis 26. So Joseph knows what God's design is, the guidelines and boundaries for sex and what God created it for, that it's to be one man with one woman for life in the covenant of marriage until death do us part, that it's not supposed to happen until the marriage promise is made, that the two people, the male and the female, must be eligible. They can't be already married to somebody else. And that sex is not to occur outside of the marriage, beyond the marriage, adultery. Joseph already knows that those are the guidelines of God concerning human sexuality. Now, we don't have to agree with that or like it, or have it be a shared opinion in order for it to be true. But we do know that these are the guidelines of God concerning human sexuality and what he has done. Joseph also knows, and this is important, Joseph knows the ripple effects and the damage that sexual sin causes. He knows what happened when Abraham went outside the marriage and he took Hagar and he brought her into his bed beyond the marriage of just him and Sarah, and that Ishmael was the byproduct of that relationship. And it was the, remember, the idolatry of the nose rings, that was Ishmaelite stuff. It tells us in the book of Judges that that was the hallmark of the Ishmaelites were the nose rings and the earrings that, remember when Jacob had to tell his sons, hey, we're burying this stuff, we're done with the idols. Joseph saw that the introduction of sexual sin into Abraham's family had lasting effects upon the descendants and and those to come. Joseph also saw what sexual sin did to Dinah, his sister, in the area of Shechem. He saw what it did to her. He saw what it did to Shechem. He lost his life. What it did to his brothers as they became guilty of blood and mass murder. He saw the pain that it caused his father when he had to deal with Dinah and the repercussions of her rape. It caused a migration of the family that they had to leave the area that they were in and it caused great fear to come upon them as they wondered if there would be repercussions for the mass genocide that they had committed. Joseph, that was burned into his mind that that was sexual sin against God that caused that. He had seen what sexual sin did when Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, had sex with his stepmother, with Jacob's concubine. And he saw the effect that that had upon Jacob and the dynamic that it brought into the family. Joseph lived for the first 17 years of his life among the Canaanites, who the hallmark of the Canaanites was sexual sin, and he saw what it did to them as a society. And he, Joseph, was just simple enough that at some point in all of that, hearing Jacob and seeing what he saw, that he just decided that he was going to do it the right way. And God blessed that decision that he made. What's impressive to me in Joseph's handling of this temptation is that he had no accountability partner. He had no Bible. He had no pastor, youth pastor. He had no radio programs. He had no outside influence or anything to keep him from it. He had an anointed decision that he was going to do things God's way when it came to his sexual behaviors. And God strengthened that decision. And I believe that God will do that for any one of his kids that seriously, honestly, sincerely comes to him 
and says, God, I want to be right and do things right your way. I believe when we're honestly serious about that, God anoints that decision and he'll equip it. Now, nevertheless, in spite of all that, this is still a very powerful temptation. And the question remains for you and I, how did Joseph navigate through the daily pressure of this temptation that he was facing? And how do we navigate the daily pressures of the temptations that we face? And can we learn from Joseph some safeguards, some things that we can build into our lives that we might be protected from falling into sin that will ultimately delay, harm, or destroy the plan that God has for our life. I want you to just notice the keys to overcoming temptation. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write these things down. The first thing that Joseph did that that caused him to be victorious in this, this pressure, is that he rehearsed the consequences of his sin beforehand. He rehearsed the consequences that would be beforehand. Notice, first of all, that this would be a violation of a great trust. He said, Potiphar has trusted me with all that's in his hand. It would be a violation of that trust. He said, second of all, that he's the leader, that there's no one greater in the house than him. That is, that he's a leader and an example. That other people are making decisions about the way they're going to live their lives based upon the things, the decisions that Joseph makes in his. He's a leader and an example. He also said, this position, he set me over all. I have a very good gig here and I'll lose it. And then finally, he says, you're his wife. This could break up a marriage. The consequences of Joseph's sin would be the violation of the trust, a sin against the leadership position that God's given him. He would lose his position, the gig that he has, and that he would break up a marriage in things and he had rehearsed the consequences of those things before the temptation came i find in my life that when temptation comes it's too late for me at that point to try to weigh out good versus bad because desires trump rationale that's just part of human makeup And if I wait until I'm in the position of a temptation to make the decision of how I'm going to handle it, then chances are I'm probably going to succumb and give away. The the consequences must be rehearsed beforehand. Now, here's the problem with with, uh, this type of temptation as it faces most American citizens and even a lot of American Christians, is that rather than rehearsing the consequences of the action, we rehearse the action. And we think about what it would be like if we did give in to the thing. And so for Joseph, that would be like, she says, lie with me. And he says, no, no, I can't do that. But then he walks away and he thinks about that. He's like, she is hot. (laughs) See, he didn't do that. One of the things that I have learned, I, I, I guess this is like, it's not confession. It's just, you know, vulnerability. But I really enjoy the sound of country music. I really feel like the, the sound, uh, you, some of you are going like, what? You know, like, you know, you're weird, you know, and I actually felt that way about that for a long time. But I heard some, some and I was, whenever the country station would come, I'd hear this, I'd be like, man, that's good sound. That's good harmony. That's, there's some real talent in that thing. But I don't listen to country music. And you know why? Because country music is rehearsing the action of what Joseph was trying to get away from and what I want to get away from. That's all it is. 
It's going back in time to my high school years and the girls that I saw and the beer that I drank and the scene that I was in. And I don't want to rehearse those things in my mind. And so though I enjoy the sound, I know I can't endure the substance because of what it does within my mind. Because what I've learned is that the heart will always make a convert of the mind. And what I rehearse inside is ultimately going to work its way out to the surface. Joseph knew the importance of it. There are consequences beyond what Joseph rehearsed to having an adulterous affair. The things that it does, the ripple effects that it has, there is so much more. If you were to go and just make a list in your mind of all the things that you can think of or that you have seen and observed in this world that are the consequences of this, that list would be very, very, very long. It is a dark thing. I I would like all of you to do something with me right now. I would like you all to repeat after me, okay? Repeat after me. I am an example in this house. This would violate a great trust. I will lose my status and position. And I will break up at least one marriage. Do you feel that? You rehearse the consequences of the sin. You don't commit the sin. The second thing that Joseph did is that he put the, cate- the sin, this particular sin, in the category in his mind of great wickedness. Now, that might seem a little bit cliche, but let me, let me try to, 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 um, to show you what that means. There's a clip that I just want you to, it's just a, a little over a minute long, but I want you to just watch this clip for one moment. I pray in Jesus' name this works. Normally, we don't give people with abhorrent beliefs a platform in which to share those ideas. But this man is running for Congress. And as much as I personally hate to put this man on TV, we believe it's important for people to know why he's running for Congress. Nathan Larson told me he wants to, quote, restore liberty and make incest legal. What about sexual relations with your own children? Like, I I would favor, like, legalizing incest. Why is that? Just because uh, personal freedom. What about uh, the children's rights? Wouldn't that be rape to have sex with a child? Uh, Well, like, like with girls, I mean, I just believe that it should be for fathers to make those decisions. And you don't find anything wrong with that? I mean, it's not for me to intrude on another family and tell them what they should do. Wouldn't that be really dangerous for children? I don't see how we know that. Like Children are human beings. They're not property. What about their protection? Uh, the law doesn't treat them as uh, having the full rights of adults. Nathan Larson also told me he doesn't think wives should be allowed to accuse their husbands of rape. Okay, now I, I, I show you that, and, and something inside of you is going like, why am I sitting in church and listening to that? Okay? That is great wickedness, right? Okay? The idea, just even the thought of the things that, that, that are being said and suggested there is great wickedness. And what Joseph did is that he took the sin of adultery and he put it in the same classification as that. 
He said, this is great wickedness. He didn't call it an affair. He didn't call it an event. He didn't call it a misdeed or a misgiving. He didn't call it a mistake. He said, this is great wickedness. Then in the sight of God, the two things are equivalent. And for him, that was a safeguard against the temptation. Is the category of his mind where he put that particular sin. The third thing that Joseph did uh, in building safeguards in his life against temptation is that he saw it as a sin against God. That's what he said to Potiphar's wife. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That he didn't see it merely on the human level of I'm sinning against Potiphar or against you or against the men who are looking at me in this position of leadership, but he said, I'd be sinning against God. He knew that the wisdom that was given to him to make him what he was in Potiphar's house was from God. That the, the, the ability for him to even be one-on-one with this woman was a privilege and an entrustment from God, that God had raised him up in the house. He believed what John the Baptist said later on, where he said that a man can receive nothing except it's given to him from above. The prosperity, the industry, the ambition, the energy, the, the, the drive that made him what he was in that place, he recognized that all of that came from God. And he also knew that God was a literal part of the marriage bond. Do you realize that when two people stand before God and make a covenant of marriage to one another, that God comes into that marriage? Ecclesiastes calls marriage a threefold cord, which means when you enter into someone else's marriage sexually, you are violating God because he's in that. And Joseph saw it, this is sin against God. This is not something that's merely on the human level. How do you sin against God and get away with it? The the fourth thing that Joseph did quite practically is that he created distance between himself and the thing that tempted him. It says that he made it a point to not lie with her, number one, or to even be with her. Now, there's nothing wrong with being with her. He could see her, he could be at the table with her, with other people, but he made it a point, I'm not going to put myself in an environment where desire, opportunity, and temptation can meet together at the same time. I'm not going to be with her. I'm I'm not going to go to the bar if I struggle with alcoholism or or, or the temptation to drink a little bit too much. I'm not going to put myself in that scene. I'm not going to go to the keto Asian buffet If I know I have the propensity to eat till I throw up, I'm not going to put myself in that position, in that place. And that was the mentality of Joseph, is that he knew he had to create a distance between himself and the thing that tempted him. And that's a choice that you and I have, that you and I get to make. And then finally, fifthly, Joseph, when there was nothing else that he could do, he ran. It says that when he was entrapped by her, And she grabbed him by the garment and there was nobody else around. And there was no other safeguard that he could rely upon. He ran. He ran. And there is a time in our lives that we need to run. Just get away. Get out. Sometimes that is the open door. Like when it says that God will provide a way of escape that you don't sin. Sometimes the open door is get out. It's a literal open door. Just go through it. Get out. Get away. The Apostle Paul said in Corinthians, he said, flee fornication, flee sexual sin, run, run. He said, every other sin that a man does is outside the body, but there is something worse 
There's something more consequential. It's not that the sin, sin is sin. We know that. But there's something more consequential about sexual sin. Run. Run. Get away from it. If you're here tonight and you're struggling, particularly in that area, run. Build the safeguards into your life. Rehearse the consequences ahead of time. See it as great wickedness. See it as sin against God. Distance yourself from the thing that tempts you. And if all else fails, run. Get out. Well, Joseph passes the test. He aced the test. He passed it with flying colors. Well, look at the fallout. It says, um, chapter 39, verse 13. We are drawing to a close. It says that it came to pass when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house and she spoke unto them, saying, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. She screams rape. And it came to pass when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. By the way, this is the second time Joseph loses a coat of authority. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spoke unto him concerning all these words, saying, The Hebrew servant which you have brought unto us came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me, and he fled out. And it came to pass that when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. So what we see of Joseph is that he passed the test, he came through with flying colors, and yet he loses everything anyway. I find it interesting where it says that Potiphar was angry, that his wrath was kindled. I don't think that his wrath was kindled at Joseph. I personally think that Potiphar did not believe his wife. I don't believe he, first of all, I believe that because he didn't kill him. I mean, the, the, the penalty of a servant doing what she's accusing him of doing would result in immediate death, and Potiphar does not do it. He didn't believe it. I don't think he believed her account at all. Potiphar had already seen, we're told, that God was with him. Potiphar doesn't want to lose Joseph. Joseph is a great advantage to him. And I think that Potiphar is in a pilot-like position here. He cannot humiliate his wife. He cannot disprove her words. And he's between a rock and a hard place. If he keeps Joseph, he loses his wife and his reputation. And if he believes his wife, then he loses Joseph and he doesn't want to do either. It's much like Pilate, right? He wanted to set Jesus free, but he couldn't for the sake of his reputation and the the peace of the nation. We're also told that he put him in the king's prison. And I love this. I want you to watch this. Look at uh, chapter 40, verse 1. I just want you to see this because it blows my mind. It says that it came to pass after these things that the butler of the king of Egypt and the baker offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was wroth against two of his officers, against the chief of the butlers and the chief of the bakers. Watch this. And he put them in ward in the house of the captain of the guard into the prison, into the place where Joseph was bound. Do you see that? It says that he put him in the house of the captain of the guard where the king's prisoners are kept under Joseph's care. Look back at chapter 39, verse 1. It says that Joseph was brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, watch, captain of the guard. 
Potiphar took Joseph and he said, all right, if I can't have you in my house, I'll have you on my job. And he took Joseph and he put him under his care in the prison. And notice what happens to Joseph in verse 21. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed mercy to him and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison, and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him, and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Potiphar brought Joseph to work with him. He said, I'll just keep you at work, and you can do everything in the prison that you've been doing here. Here's what's amazing. In a sense, you could say Joseph lost everything. He lost his gig, he lost his position, he lost his reputation, he's humbled. He's now taken from the one place, he's put into another, everything is brand new again. But really, Joseph lost nothing because it says that God was still with him. Somebody said, I don't know who said it first, but they said, you worry about your character and let God worry about your reputation. And that is a faithful principle. You just do what's right in the sight of God and don't worry what happens to you in the kingdom of men. You do your best and you let God take care of all the outer peripheral things. See, when you maintain your integrity before God, no one can take you down. You can temporarily lose a position. You can be fired from a job. You can even be put in prison. But if God is with you, then he's just going to raise you up in the new place where you are. He's going to lift you out of it. You know why Jesus didn't stay dead? Because he was righteous. He didn't sin. They took his life. They killed him. They hung him on a cross. But he couldn't, the grave couldn't hold him. It's the same principle. It's not that we're sinless or that we do everything right. Joseph didn't do everything right. But see, we maintain our integrity. We do what's right before God. And we don't lose the main thing. Here's the bottom line. Why is God allowing this? Joseph had learned in Potiphar's house, how to manage a farm. But God has more for Joseph to learn. And now, in the prison, Joseph is going to learn how to manage a government bureaucracy. That's something that he's going to need for his future. He doesn't even know that yet. He's also learning that people are not to be trusted. Now, he might have already had a sense of that after dealing with his own brothers. But he knew them. Now, this woman that was so interested in me, one minute, the next minute cried rape and saw me committed to a prison. He's learning that people are not to be trusted. Again, something that he's going to need to know in the position that God is raising him up to. He's also learning that God is absolutely safe and reliable, consistent and trustworthy. Something that he'll need every day of his life. He's learning that if I walk with him, good things happen. If I walk in obedience, good things happen. Joseph is learning and walking in surrender, faith, obedience, and perseverance. And what he's learning, and here's what we're learning if we're wise, is that if we surrender the circumstances of our life and the substance of our life into the hand of God, that that's a safe place to leave those things. That if we believe that we belong to him, we're accepted by him, He's going to finish what he started in our lives and that I don't have to worry 
when things don't go the way I understand or plan. But I trust him. I have faith. If I obey, if I keep his word and do the things that are pleasing in his sight and don't grow impatient and sin recklessly because I can't see what God is doing right now, and if I persevere and I say, God, however long this takes for you to fulfill your will in my life, I'm in it. I'm in it until it's over. Then we, like Joseph, will be fully prepared, approved, raised up, put in the purpose, the specific God-given purpose that he has created and ordained us for. And Joseph is an amazing example. The musicians can come. We're done. What are you going through right now in your life? What things that are seeming setbacks, frustrations, question marks? God, what are you doing? Why is this happening? I'm walking with you and you're letting the bottom fall out completely. Listen, you're being prepared. You're being taught. You're being instructed. Things are being added to your understanding that you have no idea and that you don't even know that you need yet. But God is faithful. And he's calling us to trust him. He's calling us to believe, to surrender, to obey, and to persevere. And the rewards are worth it. So worth it. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We ask you to take the things that we've heard, that you'd write them in our hearts. We pray that you'd strengthen us in our jobs, the positions of our life that we find ourselves frustrated in. We ask you to help us, Lord, that we would be ambitious that we would embrace what's before us and learn everything that we can. Lord, we pray for the constant battle with sin and temptation that each of us face. That you would help us, Lord, that you would brand within us a decision that we want to do what's right in your eyes. And where there needs to be safeguards, where there needs to be repentance, God, that you would help us. And I even pray tonight, Lord, for anyone here that maybe has had an affair that, Lord, you would give them grace to just repent, to turn back to you, and that you would get them back on track again, that they wouldn't despair. Lord, you're faithful to forgive us when we confess and repent. I pray even tonight, Lord, if there's someone here that's in an affair, that you would help them, Lord, to find their way out, to get in the light, as painful as it might be, that they would see that it's worth it on the other side of the storm to be back in your will and back on your path. For those of us, Lord, that are battling temptation, help us, Lord, to fight. Lord, help us not to fear what man can do to us, but to trust that you're our rock, our savior, and our deliverer. Thank you for your faithfulness, for this testimony. In Jesus' name, amen.